Well, it's Christmas time. Uh, Christmas is in two weeks or less than two weeks. Our family's getting ready. Uh, we're getting ready here. I know you, you all are getting ready. I've heard good stories already about people buying Christmas trees and putting up Christmas lights and making wish lists. Um, Advent is traditionally a time for uh, preparation and, and anticipation, especially uh, of the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, uh, that God sent his son into the world uh, to fulfill these ancient promises uh, and save his people. Now, in the history of the church, uh, the Advent season has also been a time to uh, reflect on and prepare for the second coming. Not something we tend to associate as much uh, with the Advent season, um, but the church looked forward to the great day of Christ's return. Advent means uh, arrival or appearing uh, or coming. And so in our passage this morning, um, I, I wanted to find something where we could look at both arrivals. And so we'll see both of those in view. Our passage is in Titus. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there with me now. Uh, if you remember the God eats popcorn for Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And then you have the three T's and they're in alphabetical order, the Thessalonians and the Timothys and the Titus. That, that's, that's your little trick for the day. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we do have it printed for you there um, in the bullets. And this is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Let's give our attention to God's word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would uh, use this time to shape us, to form us, to soften our hearts. God, we pray that you'd open up our ears uh, to hear uh, just exactly what it is that you have uh, to say to us this morning. We pray this uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the letter to Titus may not be familiar to you. Um, it's, it's a book named after uh, a young pastor uh, that Paul is writing to. Uh, he's pastoring a new church in a place called uh, Crete. It's, a, it's an island, um, off the co- a Greek island uh, in the Mediterranean. Um, Paul says in chapter 1 that he's left Titus in Crete so that he can put things in order. And so you get a lot of instruction about uh, church leadership and sound teaching, and you get some, some ethical uh, direction. Uh, Paul is very concerned about the surrounding culture in Crete and how it's going to affect the church. He even, he even quotes uh, a Cretan writer and says, they're always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Uh, Paul was not super impressed <laughs> Uh, with the Cretan culture, and, and he wants this new little church uh, to be different. And so verse 11, our passage, starts out with the word uh, for. Paul, Paul is telling us now uh, why he's giving all this instruction. And you can imagine maybe Titus 
uh, reading this letter and asking himself, why? why is Paul giving me all these instructions? You know, he usually has a lot to say about Jesus. Um, these first, or excuse me, these four verses uh, tell us that the order that Paul expects, uh, the new life that he wants to see, it's all uh, grounded uh, in the gospel. And he describes it as two appearings. Uh, there's a past appearing and then there's a future appearing and both of them make their impression uh, on the present life. Uh, both are necessary Uh, Both are uh, essential uh, for the new life uh, that Paul describes here. And so what I want us to do is just focus in on this question. How do Christ's two appearances, the past appearing and the future appearing, how do they actually affect uh, how we live today? Uh, So let's look at the first appearing. Uh, He says in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Uh, That word, Uh, appeared here would have had a very uh, specific uh, meaning and and usage in the Cretan culture. Uh, It would have described the arrival of a god or or hero or some kind of king-like figure. And it even would have had the actions and intentions of the person in view. Uh, It would have had had the, the reason for his appearance and everything that he came to accomplish all in view. And so the Cretans here, uh, they immediately understood that Paul's talking about some kind of royal uh, visitation. It should be clear to us. He's talking about the incarnation, about God sending his son and all that he came to accomplish in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, this, may be, this may be obvious, I'm not sure, uh, but it's important for us to see here that the grace that appeared Uh, was a person. In other words, grace here is not something that we store up. Uh, It's not a a kind of measure of forgiveness that you need a certain amount of to be okay. It's not something that's earned or piled up or that is worked for through years of right living. Grace is not something that's granted or or handed out by the church. Uh, And it's not something that we coax out of God uh, through good behavior. Uh, Fundamentally here, grace is God's disposition toward his people and the fullest expression we have of that is in Christ's appearing. So grace appeared at Christmas when God took on flesh. And Paul says it brought salvation for all people not that it saves without distinction, but it's powerful to save any and all kind of people. The the 10 verses before this, Paul has been talking about people in all different stations of life. Um, Titus needs to teach all these people because grace is powerful to save all kinds of people. Uh, God's grace can save both men and women. God's grace can save the old and the young. It can save the upper crust of society Uh, and the lower class. It can save uh, lying and lazy uh, beast-like cretins. And it can save you. Uh, There's no one that's so far gone or or sunk so low 
that the grace of God in Christ can't reach down for them. This is, this is basic uh, to Christianity, uh, but do you believe that? Do you, do you believe that this is true uh, for your neighbor? And do you believe it's true for yourself? Um, our, our question, how, how does this appearing affect our lives now? I mean, if, if we have been saved, what difference uh, does it make? Well, verse 12 says that grace trains us. We should be clear here. Um, it's not an admonition to do training. <laughs> uh, this is a lesson uh, in theology that God's grace does the training. It is uh, the training. In other words, we don't train ourselves to reach up to God. He trains us through the grace of his appearing in Christ. Uh, Apart from Christ's first appearance, uh, the virtuous life uh, is just an ideal. Uh, It's it's an abstraction. Uh, It is like me uh, hitting a hole in one. It's theoretically possible, but even if I did it, I would know it was just because I got lucky. All right, so I'm not, I'm not saying that only Christians can do good. There are many uh, non-believers who are kind, who have learned self-discipline, who, who know how to sober up. Now, people do nice things, especially around Christmas time, it seems. Um, you know, but John Owen reminds us, um, sometimes people just appear virtuous uh, because of their natural disposition. Some people are just nice. Paul says only uh, these historical facts that 2,000 years ago Christ was born of a virgin and that he lived a real human life and he died a real death on a cross for the sins of his people. Only these facts provide the necessary training for real change. Uh, Change that that lasts, change that's deeper uh, than your personality and goes beyond uh, just where your grit can take you. Uh, Change that has to do with our motives and our desires and makes us into people who really want to honor God and want to please him. So what's training us? I mean, I did have this thought this week, it's kind of this sad irony that Christmas, um, sort of as a secular holiday, uh, trains people for consumerism. Uh, The world is always training its citizens, and and the only resistance is that we need to be trained by something else. Uh, We need to be trained by the grace uh, that appeared in Christ. Um, so how do we do that? Or what does that even mean? Um, the truly good life uh, does not come uh, from within. It's something that's enabled uh, by what Christ has done. When we begin to consider all that Christ accomplished and that he did it for you, Uh, that he did it to wash away your sins, that he did it to make you right with God, something you could never do on your own. That's when your heart is moved to desire the very thing he purchased, new uh, life. So grace trains us to 
to renounce things, uh, that because Christ said no to things, we learn to say no to things, uh, and it trains us to live. He, he mentions three things, uh, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Now, this is not uh, complicated. It trains us to show restraint, to carry out justice, to work out uh, our knowledge of God in, in real life. We've already said this, but at its best, the world really does uh, want these things. But apart from Christ, it wants them uh, on its own terms. Uh, like you can think of the Tower of Babel, people reaching up to be God themselves without God. I know that some of you here uh, really want to change. Uh, that you're tired of, of your own uh, selfishness and lust and pride and anger, and, and you do desire to please God, but your, your experience is one of setbacks. At least that's what it feels like. You might feel like, I just could never try hard enough. And Paul wants you to know that the school of Christ is Grace. Uh, that we are trained by one who took on flesh uh, for our sake. And it's our own need of grace that drives us back to his appearing. He has come. He has come. This is what we celebrate at Christmas and to some degree what we celebrate every Sunday uh, here at Redeemer. And you've probably noticed that the world is still a really hard place. Uh, Christ has come, and things still aren't all right. Uh, he has come, and, and you still sin, and you still suffer, and you still long for, for something more. I mean, longing uh, is human, and faith in Christ doesn't uh, take it away. Uh, but it does is focus our longing on the object of our desire. So the new life, it is truly new, but it remains incomplete. So if, if life in Christ is going to be good news, well, then there has to be more uh, than the past. Life in Christ also depends on his second appearing. Uh, in these last verses, uh, the whole Christian life, uh, the present age, is characterized uh, by waiting. Uh, when you think of waiting, you might think about being in the doctor's office uh, or getting your oil changed. Um, what Paul has in view is a kind of eager expectation of what is to come. Uh, there, you know, there are some circles where uh, Christ's return and the fact that one day he's going to take us to heaven uh, results in a kind of disengagement with the world and even sort of shunning uh, earthly existence and saying, you know, none of, none of this stuff matters. Uh, we're going to be in heaven. But Paul takes the opposite view. Paul says the future is so important that our time on earth must be spent in preparation for that future. Its significance is so great that it produces change in us now. He calls that our blessed hope. 
And hope here is a, is a noun. It's not uh, something that we do. Like I hope, I hope things work out when Jesus comes back. I hope, you know, we have pizza on Friday. Um, this hope is a fixed uh, certainty of the final fulfillment of all of God's promises. And he calls that the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The language here uh, is intentionally linking uh, the two appearings, that both are necessary, both are part of the accomplishment of our salvation, and of course they're both linked to Jesus. Uh, Jesus uh, is the image and the final uh, revelation of God himself, um, Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1. Uh, Throughout the pastoral epistles, appearing is always used uh, in reference to Jesus. And then throughout Scripture, uh, glory uh, is often the manifestation of God himself. And so if we could paraphrase uh, this verse here, he's talking about the appearing of Jesus Christ, who is the glory of our great God and Savior. Christ is the glory. It's his appearing, his second coming, that is uh, the blessed hope. His resurrected and exalted presence is the embodiment of the glory of God. And so at the last day, uh, we too will have glorified bodies uh, with glorified eyes uh, to gaze upon the fulfillment of all of our desires. In John 17... Uh, the high priestly prayer where Christ is praying uh, for this church uh, that he's about to die for. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. In Colossians 3, Paul says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And in 1 John 3 John says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Christ's uh, return will have a transforming effect on us. It's our blessed hope because it's the very thing uh, that we were made for. Uh, To be with God, to know him by sight, to enjoy his world and his presence without sin and without shame. Again, longing uh, is, a, is a human thing. This future appearance focuses our longing uh, on him. And so until he comes, we live with this eager expectation of that future life with him. So how does that really change what we're supposed to do now? <laughs> I'm supposed to look, okay, I'm supposed to think about the future, but what does that have to do with now? Well, I think, there's maybe three takeaways uh, we can have here about how it actually affects the way we live. The first is just that it simply does give us a future orientation. Um, I've heard that a raccoon can be trapped if you put a shiny object uh, down in a hole and you make the hole small enough that if he squeezes his little paw together, he can fit it in there. But when he makes a fist, it's too big to pull back out. I don't even know if that's true, but it's in where the red fern grows, so it's like deep in here. Um, 
he won't let go of the shiny object because he's not thinking about the future. Uh, He is zeroed in on the moment (laughs) as the only thing uh, that matters to him. Uh, But Paul says, Paul says that we can have a very different uh, view when we consider uh, the reality of our future. In Romans 8, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he's not talking about just his own sufferings, which were significant. He's talking about all of the sufferings that Christians will ever face. It's not worth comparing. The only way you can get there is to really appreciate uh, what's coming. You'll never think that your present suffering isn't worth comparing unless your love of the coming glory is actually greater than even your desire for relief right now. And so Christ's return gives us this future uh, orientation. We learn to look beyond the present, to live for what is to come. We see the present as fading, and we remember uh, that the wait's going to be worth it. Uh, Christ's second appearing also gives us confidence in this life. You see, when your future uh, is secure, you are free. You are free to live uh, boldly in the present moment. You have confidence in knowing uh, that in the end, you are secure. You have confidence that you can just let go of the shiny object. Uh, you don't have to worry about what other people think about you. Uh, when I know what's coming for me in the future, I don't even have to worry about my own failures. I can keep going uh, because I know where I'm headed. Uh, To know uh, where you're going creates a desire to be prepared to meet him. Um, I was not a particularly, uh, yeah, I was a a bad student um, in college. I just didn't have any ambition other than to not have to move back to Augusta. Um, So that meant I just had to do whatever I had to do to keep a B average. (laughs) Um, But when I went to seminary, I was actually a little nervous about going to seminary because I hadn't been to school in about 10 years or so. And I I didn't write a whole lot when I was in college. And now I was going to have to write a lot. I was really nervous. But I learned in seminary, I had just a completely uh, different experience. And it's not because all the classes were awesome. Uh, It was just school too. Uh, But the difference was I knew why I was there. (laughs) I knew um, what the end goal was. I wasn't just trying to get out. I was trying to prepare uh, for something different uh, on the other side. So even the classes that I didn't think were done very well, I could engage with them at a different level uh, because I knew uh, where I was going. We see our future, our future life with Jesus, it is not just a more uh, expensive and cleaner version of the best life on earth. 
Um, Our future, the blessed hope, is that we get to be with Jesus. And you might wonder, well, I'm not even sure why I should want that. Maybe what you think of is, you know, the knight in shining armor who will rescue you and, and put his arms around you. Uh, maybe, maybe what you think of is the, uh, the leader in battle who will have victory over all his and all your enemies. But all of that is in view here. But it's interesting, the way Paul, the way Paul chooses to describe uh, the Messiah, the one we get to be with, the one we're to look forward to being with, is he's one who gave himself for us. Uh, he gave himself uh, to just the frailty of human existence and bodily suffering. Uh, he gave himself to poverty and homelessness. He gave himself to servanthood and obedience. He gave himself to rejection and betrayal, to the abandonment of his friends. He gave himself to being despised by the very people that he came to save. He gave himself to torture and insults. He gave himself to temptation by Satan himself. He gave himself to the curse of the law, to a shameful death on a cross. And he gave himself to the weight of God's wrath. And he says in John, no one could take his life, but he laid it down. This is the one that we get to look forward uh, to being with. And he calls us his own and he makes us new. He makes us into who we're meant to be. Friends, the, the glorified you is the real you. It is the version of you that will live forever with Christ and his people. It's who God intended you to be. And so to be zealous uh, for good works just means to get ready. It is to begin to love what God loves. Jesus always lived uh, to please the Father, and that's who he's making us to be. Not with brute force, uh, but with inner change, uh, new desires that are trained by grace. Uh, Christ didn't give himself to save us from other people's sins, uh, but from our own. And apart from him, sin is the deepest kind of slavery. No one can escape it um, on his own terms. But he did give himself. Again, in Romans 8, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, Christ alone is our hope, and so we rest in his first appearing, uh, even as we wait for the certainty of his second appearing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came into this world to save us from ourselves, to save us from the grip of sin and death. And Father, we thank you that our longing is not 
just empty uh, desire. Uh, but there really is a place for it. It really does find its fulfillment uh, in you. And God, we pray that you would teach us, teach us to long for Jesus Christ. God, teach us to love him. Teach us that as we reflect on what he has done, uh, we really can uh, be sure and certain of all that you said he will do. And we pray this in his name. Amen.